are going to speak of death and life. And uh, we're, we're going to jump into it a little bit in Ephesians chapter 2. But we have to understand, I hope, with a little bit of humility, that to speak of life and death is to think of very big subjects. It's just something you can't take for granted. It's philosophers and theologians and, and people of various religions. We're all trying to answer a question we can hardly define. You know, how can you ask what is the, the meaning and the purpose of life when you can hardly define what life is? And if you only define life by certain biological processes, then, then you're going to have a very poor answer to the questions of life because life is much more than the, the atoms and chemicals that make up our body. And so when we speak of death and life, we need definitions and we need understanding of origins. So when we speak of in Ephesians chapter two here of you were dead and your trespasses and sins, we need to know what dead means. Is it just when your brain stops working? And is it just when your cells stop dividing? Well, if it's just that, then there is no meaning and purpose. But if death is meaningful, really meaningful, then, then we start to understand the problems that we see around us. So how do we understand what death is? We actually, in order to understand Ephesians 2, we need to understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so you can turn there if you like. I'm just going to give a, a brief summary. I don't assume everyone here knows uh, these origins, or if I always need the reminder. I'm, I'm in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 almost every week because it always goes back to the beginning. That's where you find out the definitions of things. The book of Genesis, of course, is at the beginning of your Bibles because it talks about the beginning of all things, from the sun, moon, and stars to the planets and animals to mankind. Everything has its origin in an all-powerful, personal, wise, creative, loving God bringing into existence everything by his word, including life. From God came life because God is alive. God is living from bacteria and worms, sunflowers and birds, dinosaurs and sharks. All life comes from God. Now, again, we should be humbled by that. We are beings that can talk about, think about being alive. Animals don't do that. They don't necessarily think about being alive and kind of the moral, philosophical questions that brings. And this is because into this living creation, God made two beings especially made to have a special position and role in that creation. Adam and Eve were created, and for them, being alive meant something different than for all other living beings. They were made in the image of God. They had a unique and living relationship to God, and it's what makes human life exceptional and distinct from all the other living things, as amazing as duck-billed platypuses are. And if you've seen one, you just think, God, you were having a lot of fun, <laughs> creating a duck-billed platypus, as, as, as majestic as, as eagles are as they soar above the earth, as wonderful as all of the created creatures are, humans alone 
made in the image of God to have a unique, distinct, special relationship to God. And this is what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, is this very personal, creative act between God and everything, and then God and especially humankind, Adam and Eve. But the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve were not content to have that special and unique relationship. It wasn't enough to be set apart and be distinct from all the animals and to have this unique relationship with the Creator, to have a mind that could comprehend some of these beautiful and uh, majestic processes that, that God and His creative ability passes on to us, that God and His wisdom and power passes on to us. It wasn't enough to relate to God or even in a way to be like God, being made in his image. Adam and Eve wanted to be God, to be as unto God, to be equal with God. And so as Adam and Eve were taking in the creation, there was one command, or there's many commands, but there's one prohibitive command that had a consequence to it. And this command was for them not to eat from a certain tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there was another creature in the garden that day, and it was Satan, this, this uh, serpent-like, coming in the form of a serpent-like creature that appealed to Adam and Eve based on their desire to be God this, this creature, this being, lured them, captivated them with the promise that you can be as God. What God said not to do, you can do. How this very same Satan had also desired to be God. He's created as a servant of God, not like man, uh, to have this special, unique relationship, but as a servant of God, but even in having that, uh, that role it was not enough. Satan also wanted to be God. He failed in his rebellion. And that is why he was there to lure Adam and Eve into the same disobedience and treason because in his own sinful pride, Satan felt and believed that if he could get others to go likewise with him, uh, that they could, I don't think, ever overcome God, but to try to deny God something of his glory and his purpose and plan. So he tempted them. He didn't make them. He didn't force them. He tempted them to eat of the tree that God had explicitly told them to never, ever eat from. Because if they ate from it, God said the consequence would be death. They would surely die, God told them. So we have there in the first three chapters of Genesis, the origin of life the meaning of life for us to have the special relationship to God and the introduction of the concept of what death must mean. Now, it's interesting. If you're told, you're just, you just, you're on the planet, you're fresh, uh, you know, out, out of the dust, and you're told, you know, you can eat whatever you want out here. And maybe they had a sense of what eating was because they were hungry and they would look at food and that looks good to eat. But isn't it a weird thought, if you've never heard of death, to be told, you know, if you do this wrong thing, though, you will die. Did they have a concept even of what death was as a consequence? Um, you know, they're being warned that if you disobey, you will surely die. 
but they had not, as of yet, seen anything die. So all they could know, possibly at that point, that it must be bad because it is the consequence of rebelling against God, or as we call it, sinning. Whatever this death thing was, whatever this dying thing is, it must be super awful because it is a consequence for rebelling, disobeying God. Now, when you think about that a second, whatever you think of death, whatever your fears or concerns, whatever you know, philosophical quandaries you have about death, the Bible is very clear on the teaching about death that it exists as a consequence for sin against God. That is why death and dying exist. It's because there is something that is so horrific and awful, or, or because sin is so horrific and awful, to, to go against your creator is so, so wicked and treacherous that the only thing that could be its consequence is death. And now, of course, we here on the other side of the Garden of Eden, we know what death is, and it is awful, and it is horrible. And it is terrifying, and it keeps us up at night. And when we see it happen in children, it, it shocks us, it, it appalls us. When we see it happen en masse in genocides, it, it, it causes us to, to shiver and say how wicked. When buildings collapse or there are tornadoes and tsunamis, when we see the death toll, every single time it ought to call us to Genesis 3. This is because of sin. This is because of how horrible sin is. It shattered the entire creation. Now, Adam and Eve, they do break the command. You know the story uh, in Genesis 3. And there are at least three immediate consequences which we can associate with death as it relates to Adam and Eve. Uh, if, if, you, if you want to sort of follow along, in Genesis 3, the first thing that happened in verse 7, after they ate, is the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. The first thing that happened when they ate, remember the consequence of sin is dead, dying, death. The first thing that happens when they eat is shame at their nakedness. They felt shame about who they were. They realized they were naked physically, but it's not just a physical thing because we know that they hide themselves right after from the presence of God. So their shame isn't just about their physical exposure, but their, their spiritual soul being exposed to God. They'd done something wrong, and it tainted them in a way that they wanted to hide. In the Bible, we often see that the reaction of even prophets, these holy men of God, when they encounter God, it's what? to fall on their faces in shame and self-awareness of their sin. Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, Isaiah said. They fell, all these prophets and all these men of God and women of God in the presence of God because they were suddenly aware in the light of God's holiness, all of their inadequacies and shame, not blemishes, you know, on their face and, and things that you might be 
uh, ashamed or embarrassed by in your physical body, but no, in their soul, right? It's not like they were, oh, I didn't do my makeup today. You know, God, I'm hideous. Don't look at me. No, it's not that they were outwardly uh, exposed, but inwardly. So the first aspect or one of the aspects of death is, is this shame, is this awareness of our offense to God, of, of, of how much we have done something wicked. And yeah, it has a physical manifestation here. They, they, they hide and, and all these things. The prophets, they fell. <clears throat> it's just like their body reacts to the presence of God. But it's a spiritual um, nakedness that they experience. So part of this death, whatever it is, right? Because if the consequence of disobeying is you will surely die, and the first thing that happens is they're shamed, then, then there's something to say about the shame that we feel about our sin. That's because of the consequence of sin. That's a part of our dying, our deadness. Secondly, what happens is, of course, God is going to uh, confront them, and they're going to blame each other, and he's going to give them a bunch of consequences uh, for their sin. Uh, but that's God giving them uh, consequences for their sin. Um, and you, could, you can get into that. There's, there's cursings, there's things associated with life under the sun. It's going to be very hard. But, but notice another appearance of death in verse 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And Eve's name really literally means like life uh, in Hebrew or, or, or living Verse 21, and Yahweh God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, skins, and clothed them. Now, where do you get skins from? Animals. Now, Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit. Did they die immediately? Like just, you know, die? No, of course not. So they still don't know that kind of death that we so quickly associate with the concept of death. But uh, here, I, I, I don't think it's that God like materialized animal skins for them to wear. Almost certainly, and this is what you know, almost universally commentators and theologians say, animals were sacrificed, were killed. Animals were killed in order to get these skins. In other words, they saw the physical consequence of death. They saw a lifeless creature that was no longer able to function, no longer able to grow. The picture here was, of course, that this animal's life was sacrificed so that Adam and Eve could have their sins covered. Just like their nakedness was covered by the skin, so to speak, their spirit was, was cloaked, you could say, so that they could live and move and breathe without fearing God constantly because there was at least a cover even for their soul and their, and their spirit. So while Adam and Eve didn't immediately die, their physical bodies did enter into a process that eventually would lead to what was happening to that animal that was dead. That one day, Adam and Eve would return to the dust from whence they came, just as that animal was. So they saw physical death, and of course, physical death is one of the consequences of sin. Very, you know, very clearly portrayed here, that these animals had to die. Nothing had died yet. They started dying, Adam and Eve, but... These creatures had died, and so we understand that death does include our physical bodies being uh, turned into dust. Lastly, 
God banishes them in the following verses. Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at, at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the third thing that happened that is a consequence of sin. Therefore, what it means to die, to be dead. It's not just physical, but we see the sense of shame, awareness of sin. We see here uh, an, uh, a banishing from the presence of God. They're banished from paradise. They're separated from this place where God had intended for them to be forever and ever with him, now they were separated from it. There was a rift between God and humans spiritually. You can't escape the presence of God, but now relationally there was a separation. Part of that shame actually is the acknowledgement, the recognition that there's a distance between me and God. The embarrassment and guilt that I'm feeling is because I know I've done that which God has told me not to do. And now that there was hostility between themselves and God, mankind could no longer be in the presence of God as they were before. Their spiritual connection and fellowship severed. And humans would from then on continually try to find their spiritual satisfaction in things other than God, having been barred by God from accessing paradise apart from this tree of life. And we know that the only way that we can access heaven is by a tree as well, a cross on which Jesus Christ's son uh, hung. And in, in fact, the end of Ephesians 2 talks about the separation that exists between us and, and God and us and the world. But all that to say, when we put together a complete picture of death and dying, we see that the nature of death and dying comes from sin, and it has not only to do with our physical being. I know it's very easy to think of death and we quickly associate it with our bodies, with, with hospitals and with the cemeteries. But understand when the Bible talks about death, deadness, dying, it includes our entire being, including the immaterial, spiritual part of us. It includes our relational uh, aspect between God and us and, and us and others. It, 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 it introduces this idea of Satan, the first rebel and sinner who promotes and tempts others to the same deadly trap of sin. He is dying, so he wants to take everyone else with him. And that we are now in a world of death, that since Adam and Eve, there have only ever been sinners born, born from their generations except for one, Jesus Christ. But now everything we see in the world is tainted by this creeping curse of death, from disease and war to cranky neighbors and road rage, what we actually see when we see something wrong, not as it should be, when we see death and decay, we're actually seeing the symptoms of sin that started here running its course, producing more and more death. It's a very multifaceted, I think, total picture of deadness that Paul has in mind when he writes to the Ephesians, that all those themes from Genesis will be seen again. And if you remember, uh, Ephesians chapter one is in a way a prayer that he's making, or at least the end of it. And we've talked about, we've talked about this discipleship prayer. And the first word in Ephesians chapter two, and, and realize that when Paul wrote this letter, he did not 
right chapter and verse. That was added later for our convenience so that we could study the Bible. But the first word is and. In other words, he's continuing a thought. He's just talked about our glorious hope and inheritance. He's talked about our uh, future and, and being raised with Christ. And it's all part of a prayer that he's making that we grow in the knowledge of him. And as great and wonderful as that is, it causes Paul to think about how undeserving we are of that glory. He can't help but think there's so much to be blessed by, so many wonderful things to think about. You know, if you're a power-positive thinking guy, I mean, you're just, Ephesians 1, just amazing. You could, you could just rest on that. But Paul cannot help but think of the bad news. Why is the good news so good? It's because the bad news is so bad. So it's, and you were dead. It just, it's, a, it's a next part of the thought, is that he could not think about the glories without thinking about who we were and not deserving that glory. They must go together. So it's a small word, and, but it's, very, it's carrying a lot of weight if you think about what we're going from to this passage. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There was a terrible and dark condition that we were in before we were Christians. It was under that shadow of death that has been going on for generations all the way back to Adam and Eve. We were a part of that and we weren't just subjected to that. Like I just grew up in it, but I wasn't like that. No, Paul's very clear that you were dead yourself in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. Even him, because you notice it switches. You were, you were dead in the trespasses and sin. And then what does he say in verse five? We, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Same phrase, except he goes from you, you guys were dead in your sin. To, I was too. There is, uh, the word trespasses and sins carries with them the idea of your responsibility that you chose, I chose to go beyond what God commanded and allowed. That God told Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree. You can eat from every other tree. Don't eat from this tree. And yet they went ahead and did it. It wasn't accident. It wasn't ignorance. It wasn't like missing a sign that says, don't walk on the grass. And you actually accidentally walked on the grass. This was deliberate. They had a whole conversation with Satan about it. So it's not as if this was just Oh, I, I, I didn't know. You should put a fence around it or something. No, he had a full-blown conversation with Satan about the tree. When Eve took the fruit, when Adam ate the fruit, they were all completely culpable for their own sins. By saying we're dead in trespasses and sins, it's saying that we ourselves are not just living, born in a world cursed by sin, but we ourselves are sinners. The way that the grammar works here, um, for you, you, you guys that like grammars, it's, it's not exactly clear whether it's saying we're dead and it's because of our sin or that the evidence of our deadness is that we continually 
trespass and sin. In other words, is this a result? Is my deadness a result of my sinning? Or is the fact that I keep on sinning show my deadness? Well, you know, it's one of those rare moments where commentators like, probably both. You know, it's very, Paul writes this in such a way that um, it, it, it likely refers to both aspects. Either way, it is true. Both are true. You're dead because of your trespass and sin, but also you show that you're dead, again, in that fully, you know, multifaceted way by sinning. Just like you can die from ingesting a toxin, right? You can also, when you are dying, produce toxins. You know, dead bodies also produce toxins. So, you know, sin is a toxin that I both am, you know, I am bringing into my life by virtue of living in this sin-cursed world, but it's also something I produce. Luke 15, 24, if you remember the prodigal son, what is the, you don't have to turn there, but what does the father say of his son when he comes running back? He says, for this was, for this my son was dead and is alive again. Now he's literally alive the whole time physically, but of course, when he turned against his father, he became dead to him and he lived a life of spiritual deadness and sin. That's what we mean by, by walking in it it's the pattern of your life. This is willingly um, taking deliberate steps towards sin and because of sin. Um, this is a, a way of life where you cannot say someone is, is forcing you to do it, but that every step you take is one that you, you choose, where you could have at any moment turned back the other way, but you didn't. We, we once followed that path personally. But then Paul does go on to say following the course of this world. So it is true, though, that the world is constantly trying to force us into its mold. That's what it's talking about here. It's not following as in, um, you know, just blindly playing follow the leader wherever they go, you go. That's not exactly what it means. I kind of wish they used a different word than the word following there. It's more like this world has a certain way that it is. It's, it's, it's not referring to the planet like the literal globe and earth underneath your feet. But when the Bible uses the term world, it typically means the godless system that has rebelled against him. That this is a, a machine, you could say. The world is a machine that is fueled by sin to continually produce sin. And, and I know... <laughs> I know that there are like a lot of conspiracy theories. It's very popular these days. And we want to know who controls the world and who's running things behind the scenes and all those things. But the Bible is very, has a very straightforward answer. Sin has defined and molded this world into what it is. And every person born into it is going to be pressed into that mold. Now, it's true. On the one hand, you are going to take steps into that mold. Because everyone else is doing it, that's how you're going to justify it. It doesn't mean you're not accountable. Just because the whole world is trying to press you into a mold doesn't mean that that's an excuse. But there is a lot of pressure to do things the way everyone else is doing it. Every radio you know, show, every internet ad, every, every video now seems to be trying to mold everybody into a certain pattern of thinking that is ungodly. But understand... That's always been like that. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned and until God ushers in a new age, 
of peace and restoration, the world has a system in which it is trying to press you into the mold of rebelling against God. On top of that, from the time of Adam and Eve until now, Satan has been working behind the scenes to promote and prolong this system of sin. He is called the prince of the power of the air here. And again, Genesis 3 talks about Satan. Here, this is another reference to him. Um, Throughout the Gospels, Jesus calls Satan things like the prince of demons or the ruler of this world. In other words, the realm of his influence and authority is the air. And the way that they used that kind of phrase in Paul's day, the air, it it meant like everywhere air is. (laughs) which is everywhere on this planet. So it's, it's referring to everything from you know, the, the ground all the way to the sky and everything in it. So where is Satan's realm of authority? This planet, this world. Just like Jesus said, he is the ruler of this world. From go- ground to sky, in, in between all people and creature, creatures, Satan has been allowed, allowed by God to operate in this space and and to exercise his wily desires and schemes and we see that in ephesians 6 when we get there that we are to defend ourselves against his schemes and his fiery darts now just to be clear satan is never operating outside of god's plan and purpose even as he's trying to thwart god's plan and purpose that is part of god's plan and purpose that's how sovereign god is But until that day when his time is over and God's purpose and plan for him is through and he's overthrown and he is defeated and he's cast into the lake of fire, in this sin-cursed world, he is the one in charge. That's what Jesus said himself. That's the fact of the matter. And he prowls around like a roaring lion, Peter says, seeking whom he may devour. This is his arena wherever the air is, wherever the air touches, that is his. Now, the main way he operates, just like in Genesis, is by tempting those who already have sinful passions and desires. Is of course, he's not... Even Judas, who had Satan enter into him to betray Jesus, it was already in Judas's heart, the selfishness, And the greed was already in there from the beginning. He was a very willing vessel for Satan to work through. You cannot say the devil made me do it because the devil is always working on what's already there. It was already in Eve's heart. She already saw that it was pleasant to the eyes and that it looked like it would be good to eat the fruit. And so Satan is, is not forcing us, but often, more often than not, simply... Um, interacting with our spirit of disobedience. And that's what we see here, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Um, that might seem a little bit confusing, the phrasing of it, but it's essentially saying that um, uh, the spirit is the immaterial part of us. Um, and there is in us, in, in our desires, in our immaterial um, thoughts and, and passions, uh, a, a manipulation that, that Satan can make that he can appeal to us in our immaterial you know, place of, of, of desire and longing and lust, and he can play off of that. He's, in, he's, he's able to influence that part. And so 
he is using his, um, his years and years and years of experience as a tempter to, to prey upon us, to, to cause us to walk in disobedience, such that we become, as he, as he says here, sons of disobedience. We'll, we'll explain that a little bit in just a second when we talk about being children of wrath, which is like a very harsh term. But again, we can't say the devil made me do it because right after Paul talks about how we're subject to the world, you know, and so always pressing us in the, the mold and that Satan, our adversary, our enemy is, is, is around there. He's the ruler of the, of, of the air. He still says, among whom we all, we, again, Paul's including himself, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, we cannot say or blame the world, you know, the TV, um, you know, teachers, the culture, parents, grandparents. You can't blame other people. You can't blame the devil for your sins. No amount of people sinning against you can ever justify your own sin against others. And so, Paul is very mindful that we are doing what we want when we sin. He uses the term flesh here twice. I don't know exactly why the ESV translated it this way, but in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the, and the word there's flesh again. Um, if you have, at least in my Bible, there's a little one, and you look, and it says Greek, flesh. It's the same word. So the term flesh in the Bible is often used in the New Testament to mean the part of us, that only cares about our most basic selfish desires and our most basic instincts. The flesh is that instant reaction to respond to accusations with defensiveness and self-righteousness. The flesh is that envy you get when someone has what you want and you just kind of can't help it when you see it. The flesh is that reaction to say no when someone asks to share, to preserve yourself, to look out for uh, numero uno at all times. The flesh is, you know, when you just get angry and frustrated when someone's annoying you. That's the flesh. It's just when you're operating just out of that reflexive, very selfish nature. It's the way babies are born almost innately. Um, I used this analogy before, but, you know, a baby had the strength of a person like a grown man, rip your arm off to get like orange juice or milk. You think, <laughs> thank the Lord, they're just tiny little people because they, would, they wouldn't care because they want that thing that they want. That's the flesh. It's not that their default position is to be, you know, loving and kind and, and cuddly. I mean, when they're sleeping, yeah, but, you know, they're demanding. And guess what? A adults, um, they're just the same. You know that. That is our flesh that is hostile to God, hostile to things of God, hostile to thinking of anyone else except myself. I know people, I know people who've claimed to not really sin anymore. And they generally mean they don't do the big kinds of sins, murder, adultery, stealing. But we have to understand, when Paul is talking this way about sin, he's talking about the very deep things that people don't even no one can tell the motive of why you said or did something. Like those kind of places of our heart, 
Paul is saying, that's, what's the, that's, that's you being dead in your sins. He's talking about motivations and the deepest desires. Um, sin occurs when we don't immediately have the right attitude in a given situation. That's the level of this incisiveness about our sin, the depth of our sin. I know I should be kind, but I don't really want to be kind. Uh, I know I shouldn't uh, get upset when, you know, something, uh, the kids break something or I get cut off on the, I know I shouldn't, but I, I do. Well, that's sin. It's not like, well, I don't do big sins because I didn't run them off the road or, or you know, you honk the horn or, or something like that. No, you, you sinned even when you had that thought, like what, you know, what a jerk. Like, this, that person's awful. You just immediately make, that's sin. It's sin when you're frustrated with someone and you choose to be cold and distant rather than talking with them about it and saying, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm really bothered by something you said. Maybe I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking into it too much. But, but instead of doing that, you just, you know, I'm just gonna, not having to do with them. I, I, don't, I don't really care about that person anyway. That's sin. Be cold and distant choosing to, to not make things right with someone. It's sin to, to shop on Amazon, buy something just because you're feeling super depressed or lonely and just, you know, I'm going to make myself feel a little better by, you know, looking at a bunch of stuff and seeing what I buy. That's sin. You're not dealing with your, 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 your frustrations or, or your, your loneliness or, or whatever. You're not bringing it to the Lord. I'm not saying it's always wrong to, you know, take a walk in the mall or something when you're not feeling super, you know, super happy. But to think that buying something is going to kind of give you that adrenaline and, and dopamine hit, that's sin. <laughs> Whenever we don't, as a reflex, go to God and seek to honor him at the expense of our own pride and ego we are carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind that's all sin when we spend our lives that way and you know who spends our life that way we all do i do i have everyone is under that kind of condemnation it reveals that we are rebellious children just like adam and eve and if we are rebels, we've set ourselves against God, then we become his enemy. And so by nature, Paul says, we are children of wrath. Children here doesn't mean helpless and clueless and not responsible for our actions. Children means those who are identified with this heritage and lineage. You are part of the house of the children of wrath. If, if you're familiar with like family feuds and rivalries between clans, you had the Hatfields and the McCoys, Right? If you're a child of the Hatfields, you're immediately a child of wrath if you're a McCoy, you know, from the McCoy's perspective. And so we're not talking about children as helpless and, and all those things. We're talking about an identifying marker. If you're a child of the, you know, the other uh, feuding clan, the other family that we hate, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, you are by nature now categorized in all the ways that family's categorized. That's what we're talking about. We are inheritors of wrath by being children of disobedience and just like you are by nature the children of your parents we were all by nature children of sinners and therefore just like adam and eve under that same condemnation of death and all of its forms the shame the physical death the spiritual separation from god 
Well, that's really, like, that's very depressing, Paul. I don't know why you brought that up. We were having a good time praying about, you know, growing in the knowledge of Christ. You know, think about these things, your inheritance. Think about the hope you have. Think about the forgiveness of sin. And then you got to kind of make me, you know, kind of introspective and a little bit depressed at how, how, how sinful I am. Well, we, we have to do that so that when we get to verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is one of the greatest passages in the Bible, arguably. It means that no matter how dark and desperate a situation you are in, maybe you are in now, the sovereign God can do that which no one else can do and what no one expects, which is to forgive and save sinners. If, he, if the consequence of sin is death, what must he do if he wants to reconcile us and forgive us? He must make us alive again in every single way, from shame to glory, from a body that is dead and decaying to a glorious body, from being spiritually separated and apart from God to being united with him forever and ever into eternity. This is what God does, and no one should have ever presumed that he would ever do such a thing. And we will get more into that <laughs> next, next week, the grace of God. But we need to, in a way, you can't really understand grace unless you understand how bad a situation you were in when you were in sin. Of course, when sin seems small, grace will seem to be insignificant. After all, if sin is not that big a deal, then God giving me grace, it's not that big a deal. It's like the difference between owing $1 to the bank and someone says, hey, here, here's a dollar, to owing billions of dollars to the bank. And someone says, well, here's billions of dollars. There's a vast difference. Sin in you causes all of the problems that you're experiencing right now. The sins around you are causing all the problems in the world, and you, we're all contributing, contributing to it. And we were dead in that. We're dead in the water with all of that. It was like with the kids. It's no, there's no, it seemed like there's no boat, not, no life preserver, nothing. We're just floundering in our sin. It's dramatic and significant just how desperately lost and in the dark we were. Grace isn't just a little bit of help to get you through the day. It's not just a poster with you know, inspirational quotes. Grace is the difference between life and death. It is the power to raise you from the dead physically and spiritually because that is how awful it is to sin against the one who made you. Grace is overwhelming. Grace is, is something that can change everything. But it doesn't make sense unless you're aware that you're a sinner. Now here, it's a past tense. I'm very thankful for that. Because as much as I feel like such a, a sinner and a failure and I don't match up and I'm very weak and, you know, this is, <laughs> is going to come up here and just complain to you about my my weakness. I can't do that. They're going to feel sorry for you or, or, or tell you, well, you're dealing with that. Let me tell you what I'm dealing with. <laughs> you know, then we can go around and around. 
it's just, it was it was just one of those weeks. I don't. I, it's hard to articulate just why it was so uh, so difficult and discouraging. Um, but I like past tense. For a Christian, these are all in the past tense. <laughs> that was the way you were, just constantly pressed by the world into its mold of sin, led by the Satan, this awful, wicked tempter. You're far from God and all these things. That's past tense if you're a Christian. I don't need to think that way. I don't need to dwell on my sin. I don't need to dwell on my shame. I need to acknowledge it. I need to say, yeah, it was that bad. It still kind of gets that bad. But God, being rich in mercy, with great love, which we loved, he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. If you're not a Christian, do you understand the depth of your sin? Do you understand the problem of death and what it is? It's not just a physical cessation of your body's activities. It is an entire state of being that affects everything here and in the hereafter. You must have a relationship with God through Christ if you are to avoid the fate of death and all of its meanings. If you're a Christian this morning, I hope you do need the bad news to really appreciate the good news. It's okay to think about your sin because God says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But realize, I think one thing is if you're, if you're doing okay, you know, sin is, hey, I, I'm, I'm actually finding some victory over sin. I'm actually doing okay right now. If you're one of those people that's doing okay, understand the whole rest of the world is dead in their trespasses and sins. And they need you to be a light. They need you to be a witness. If you're at all experiencing any kind of joy and happiness in the Lord, thankfulness, gratefulness in the midst of this chaos, there are so many others. I think we're gonna pass the eight billion mark on planet Earth soon, if we haven't already. Billions and billions of people who are in the darkness, who are dead, they need you to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is forgiveness. This world that is so broken is going to be made new. And if you want to be a part of that, you need to have a restored relationship with God through Jesus. So if you are doing good, and I hope you are, I hope you're also about the gospel. If you're struggling, though, past tense. It's good news. Great God's grace has forgiven us and made us alive together again. So be thankful and blessed. Let me pray. We'll close. I'll pray for the food also. Heavenly Father, thank you for your sustaining grace. It is, it's, it's more than I can imagine. It's even the smallest bit of it is more than I deserve. But you, God, are so, so kind and so loving that you would save sinners like me. And I thank you, Lord, and thanks is not enough. Help me to live for you also, renewed passions and desires, a difference in how I think and react to things. Help us to grow by your Spirit's work in our lives, to trust you in believing with a genuine saving faith, and ultimately help us, Lord, to glorify you in, in, in all aspects of our life. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to enjoy a barbecue together. At the same time, uh, Lord, we, we pray your blessing on, on uh, Jan and uh, John Rossello and, and Rick Stafford, who will be moving uh, out of state. Uh, very